0: Well, who's happy to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. You talk about singing, man. Come on, man. Jesus. All right, well, y'all want to sing a song? Let's stand to our feet. Let's sing something. I'll just sing what we were just singing, right? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with which. The power and love, our God is an awesome God. One more. Our God is an awesome God. You reign from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. One more. Our God, is an awesome God. You reign from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You can sit down. Amen. Amen. I don't think I've ever sing in front of y'all. Amen. There you go. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Actually, now that you all in the mood, everybody stand back up. I needed you to do one more thing with me. Uh, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. Uh, I I want to teach you something called the Shema. Uh, this is a Hebrew prayer. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I've done it here a bunch of times. Uh, some of the new people don't know it. Uh, a couple things you gotta know. There's a couple Hebrew words in it. Everybody say, <laughs> You're getting ready for it, right? Apologize to the person in front because some spit's coming out, right? Say, you got to say that. When we get to the part, don't miss it. Say it hard. I want to hear that, all right? And then the second thing about Shema is that Shema cannot be said quietly. There's a lot of cute people in the audience. I appreciate your cuteness. Let's not be cute right now, right? (laughs) Let's get hard. You got to yell this. You got to scream this. This is not to be done daintily. Amen? So just repeat after me. Say, Shema Yisrael. All right, that was cute. Y'all ready? Shema Israel. Yeah. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Adonai Achad. There it is, Hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. Come on, let's see it. Put your hands up. This is what I do with my kids. You got to do it. With all your heart. With all, mind, with all your mind, with all your strength, all your strength. come on, right, and love your, love your neighbors, do it again, touch somebody, you can't love your neighbor without touching them, and love your neighbors, love your neighbors. as yourself, as yourself. In, Jesus name. in Jesus' name, amen, amen, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, you can sit down, thank you for doing the shma with me, I appreciate it. Well, I am excited about being able to stand in in front of you guys. It's always an honor and a privilege for me to be back here. It's it's home. I feel like I'm back home whenever I come here. Uh, but sometimes when you're back home, you, you tend to talk long. So I'm not going to talk too long even though I'm home, right? Because the home thing is nice unless we go in too late and then it's like, yeah, this ain't your home because it's time to get off. No, so we, we won't be in front of you too long. I, I do have something that has been near and dear to my heart that I've been thinking about and I'm really excited about being able to share this with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to the book of Mark. We're going to dive right in. Mark chapter 1, verse 6. I didn't send you this slide, so just, yeah, leave that there. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 6. John uh, wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John was clothed, uh, made of camel's hair, leather belt, and around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. God, tonight, we want to hear you. We came here to have an encounter with you, have a moment with you. And so, God, I pray that you will encounter us. You do what you do best, and that's come and invade our very world, invade our worldview and cause shiftings and movement in what you want us to be into the direction that you want us to go. Father, we thank you for where you're leading us, and we pray that you will speak a word of life, a word of change. We pray, God, that you will remove any distractions, anything we carried into this room. We lay it down before you now so that we can hear a word from you today in Jesus' name. And then finally, Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, not for fame or reputation, but for someone to believe in Jesus' name. Amen. And man, the title of my message today is is Jesus and John. And one of the things that I've been exploring recently is is the relationship that Jesus has with people on earth. It's that encounter, that moment. I I know for me personally, uh, there was a moment at 12 years old where I had an encounter with Jesus and forever I was different. Anybody remember the moment, right? I'm not going to ask you to, to say anything, but just put your hand up if you remember that moment, that encounter moment with you, with Jesus. Now, some of y'all uh, might not have had like an encounter moment because you was born Christian. Come on. Some of y'all, right? You like you came out the womb and it was like you are Christian. Go on. In, in Jesus name, right? That that there is some of us, but, but but for others, right? There is this this moment experience where where he is revealed to you and it forever changes you. One of the things that I've been exploring with our church, and I'm excited about this exploration that we're doing, is, is what was Jesus' impact with people? He had moments with people. And if he has moments with us that impacted us and caused us forever to be changed, how crazy was it for him to have that moment on earth with that person and this, this shift, something happens in these interactions? Uh, And so if you want to hear more of them, you can come to our church on Sunday. We're going to do a bunch of them. Today, I'm just going to talk about Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, I want to look at their story together, and there are things that I think we can glean from it uh, for our lives and for our stories, but more than that, help us to understand where God is directing us and leading us even today. Amen? John's story, first we'll start with, with kind of who John the Baptist is. Now, now, you guys probably have an idea of John the Baptist. Of course, uh, he came before Jesus to prepare the way uh, for everything that he was going to do. But there is a description of John the Baptist that, that I think is very helpful for us to, to kind of get a glimpse of who this man was. Uh, the things that said of him is that he wore a leather belt, which I don't have time to deal with today, right? But, but he also says that he ate locusts and honey. And so his diet was locusts and honey. Now, let me just be real with you. I'm from the city of Boston, okay? I'm from the straight city. So people that live out in the woods, they're some weird people, amen? Now, if you got a calling for the woods ministry, I'm sorry. I apologize now. If that's your calling, bless God, go do it. But, but I'm a brother that stays in a city, okay? I, I, don't, I don't want to go out in country. If it's too quiet, I can't sleep. That's me right? Like I need horns honking and cars driving, preferably somebody mad at somebody. I'll be like, oh, that's nice. Somebody's yelling. I'm sleepy now. (laughs) That's that's, that's me. And and so someone like John the Baptist has always been someone that's a challenge for me. The word says is that he was wild and free and he lived out uh, in the wilderness. But then it says two things about his diet that I think explains something about this man and who God called him to be. It says that he ate locusts and he ate honey. Well, one of the things you understand about locusts is that locusts kind of are an insect that is in one place at one time and then it's fully gone. The, the, the idea of a locust is that it comes, consumes everything, and then it's gone forever. If you study locusts, they, they're, they're really bad, right? And they come in and destroy entire crops, entire plants, and take over entire areas, and then they're gone. It's almost as fast as they come is as fast as they go. And the idea that John the Baptist ate locusts should say something about his freedom, how wild he is, and how he moves kind of with the spirit. That that he's here one day and then maybe not here the next day, and he comes and consumes and, and brings something powerful, and then he's gone forever, and you kind of don't see him anymore. And the idea is that John eating locusts represents that he was kind of wild and free like a locust. You don't know where he's going next or what's the next agenda. He's just where he is, and maybe tomorrow he's somewhere totally different. Another side note is that locusts are really gross to eat, I'm, I'm thinking. Come on, right? Unless you like insects, then maybe it's a good one. I don't know. Uh, of the lip insect connoisseurs, I'm pretty sure a locust is at the top, right? Anybody? No. Okay, so I don't know the taste of locusts. I do know, however, that you can eat locusts and be a Jewish person. That, that, that was kosher. So, so it wasn't like he's outside of the purview of God, but, but, but it's not something that we would normally eat. I actually heard that they're good. Amen? Yeah? You raise your hand. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm going to believe you. I'm not going to taste it. All right? Amen. Locust. Now, now, the second thing it says is that he ate honey. Now, locust is like wild, and you don't know where they are or where it's going, but, but honey represents something a little different. Honey comes from bees. In fact, the word for bee in Hebrew is the word Deborah. It's where we get the name Deborah, and it actually is the word for discipline or restraint. And so the idea of a bee is that a bee is extremely disciplined and structured. That's what they are. They, they, their entire lives, they have an agenda, they have what they're supposed to do, and they live their entire lives to do what they're called to do. They're a symbol of discipline. And so one of the things that says about John the Baptist is that he's free and he's wild and he goes where the spirit leads, but yet when he goes and he goes to those places, he brings discipline and structure. That even though he's, he might be outside of what people might think, that, that it was still something in him that God was trying to create, something that he was trying to do. Now, now in the three encounters that Jesus has with this weird John the Baptist, uh, I'm going to break these up into three scenes. And so if you're taking notes, I got three scenes that we're going to look at in the story of John the Baptist. Uh, of these two people that were related, there's not much of their story. And so we're going to try to deduce as much as we can from these stories to try to learn something about John and Jesus, but more than that, to glean something to live on for our lives. Amen? Scene one, let's start it. Uh, And I like to call scene one the leap. Uh, The scene one is all about this, this leaping that happened at the introduction of these two. The story is found in Luke chapter 1. We can go there in verse 39. You can look on the screens. Uh, It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She stood her cousin. Uh, And what you need to know is that when she came to visit her, at that point, she was about six months pregnant. Uh, Elizabeth was an older woman, and so uh, she didn't think that she could have children. And so this this could have been maybe a dangerous pregnancy or a really stressful one. And it almost seems like when Mary got there, she brought comfort and peace to her. Specifically, what it says is that when Mary saw her, uh, she, Elizabeth, was filled with the Spirit, and the baby inside of her leaped for joy. And I don't know if you're like me, but, but I get an image uh, of a baby uh, jumping up and down and shouting. And I come from the black church. Let me just, let me just explain something to you all, okay? The, the Holy Spirit worked one way in the black church. There was a song that would start playing, and you would start dancing, and you would get going, and the Spirit was moving. And so what I thought as a child, let me be real, is that in Elizabeth's belly, John the Baptist started shouting. Like he was in her womb just moving and shouting and shaking and jumping and dancing. That's the image that I've always got of John the Baptist uh, in her belly. And I'm not telling you that that image is wrong. Uh, Perhaps he did jump and dance and leap and all of that. But I think there is a little bit more to what this is saying. Uh, And I think as we dig deeper, you can find some truth that's hidden, if you will. The word for leap in Hebrew is the word pizzazz. Everyone say pizzazz. Uh, pizzazz is actually where we get the idea of pizzazz, right? Like, like pizzazz is like happiness and like jumping around and being all excited. You know, uh, cheerleaders, right? That's the, right away I'm thinking a cheerleader's got lots of pizzazz. I don't got much. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a pizzazz brother. But there are some pizzazzy people in this world. Amen? And, and that's a, pizzazz is, is the idea of leaping. But what's really fascinating, what's really powerful about the Hebrew language, and I think I've taught you this before, is that you know that one English word or one Hebrew word can mean a bunch of English words. And sometimes the other things that the word means can help you to understand the context of what it's saying in this story. I do believe that there was a leaping in her belly, that there was movement. But I actually think that the better translation is to make strong that what happened in her belly was that John was made strong by Jesus that he moved. And and leaping is is kind of making strong because if you leap a bunch, you're getting stronger. Amen, right? Workout people, right? Jumping uh, helps you to get strong. And so you can see how there is a link between leaping uh, and making strong. But specifically for this, uh, what I find fascinating is that Jesus was there to strengthen John for what he was supposed to do. Like like the beginning story of Jesus and John is, is that as a baby in Mary's belly, he strengthened John for what he was called to do. That, that he was actually there to equip him. That he was there to strengthen him, to affirm him. What's even more powerful is that if you read the rest of the story, it says that Mary stayed there for the next three months. And so it's almost like Mary went there to be strength for Elizabeth as she gave birth to this child. She would have been with her all the way through to the end of this pregnancy. Maybe even being there when John was born to strengthen her, to be there for her. It's almost like God sent Mary there to strengthen Elizabeth and John for who and what they were called to become. Jesus went there and did something even before he does anything, before he speaks a word, his presence in the belly of his mother brought strength to John for the journey that he was going to be on. What I find powerful is that the impact of Jesus doesn't even start with his birth, right? Like like his fullest impact began before he was even here. And before he could say a word, he was strengthening and affirming John for him to do what he was going to have to do. And if you know the end story of John, the entire journey of John, you know that he was going to have to be strong to do what he was called to do to leave the places that he lived, to go be in the wilderness, to follow after God, to create in many respects this idea of baptism that came from a Jewish concept but is very different with John. God had to strengthen him eventually to do what he called for him to do. And I believe that there is a strengthening that God does in us, Uh, even in our wombs, right? He strengthens us uh, for what he's calling for us to be. What I like is that all the strength that John got and walked in later was the strength that Jesus gave him as a baby. The second scene we see, right? And we can move on. The the, the scene two that we kind of pick up with in their story is the baptism. And so you almost have to fast forward 30 plus years from this first story. We don't see many interactions between John and Jesus. We do believe, however, that they did have interaction. Uh, that there was some sort of connection uh, because they talked of each other. They speak of each other knowing each other, okay? So so there was it, but we don't see these in the Bible. But we do see this story, and it's a, it's a very powerful and awesome story. Uh, I'm going to read the account that comes in Mark. I, I really like that one. It's succinct, and its verbiage is really good. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9 is the story of Jesus' baptism. Of course, these are in all of the Gospels. At that time, it says, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, And was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. I love that language. It's almost like ripped, like the, the sky ripped open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased." At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was uh, in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. You are my son, who I am well pleased is where it ends. Now, now, now what's, what's interesting about this story, powerful uh, about this story, is that uh, the story of Jesus' uh, baptism is the first time that we get the Trinity fully depicted here on earth. We have Jesus the Son on earth and and then you have the heavens, in many respects, rip open and we hear the voice of God come out and and then there is the dove that descends and and we get this image of the Trinity on earth for the first time, maybe since creation, Uh, kind of doing something in this moment, preparing uh, for God's move. We also know that up until this point, Jesus had did uh, nothing that I like to call Jesus-y. He was just a man. Uh, in the Greek language, it's tecton. He was a, a carpenter. He was a, a Mr. Fix-It. He would go to houses and fix what was broken, uh, and, and that was his life. And all the way up till this point, at, at 30, this was the beginning of, of his earthly ministry and the start of when he started to act a little bit Jesusier uh, than he was acting before. Now, I'm the type of person that I, want, I believe that when we get to heaven, uh, that there's going to be like a big movie screen somewhere. And we're going to be able to watch videos of what happened in the Bible. Anybody think that's heaven? That's what I want. I need to be able to watch stories that I've read about. Like, I want to see it, like there was a camera there. And and, and if I were to see this story, let me just tell you real quick that this story is really beautiful. It's dope. It's powerful. But But it would need some music. Right? Like, like... <laughs> If this were to happen, if you were to stand at a water and the heavens ripped open and God spoke, I think there would have been a soundtrack behind that. It would have been like, oh, right? There would have been some angels singing, something going. Imagine if it was just birds chirping, somebody sneezed or a cough in the middle of this. It would ruin the whole thing for me. Like, I feel like this had to be like a fully, you know, Hans Zimmer, get a good uh, music, John Williams, somebody to put a soundtrack to this. I think it'll be really dope to see. Eventually when we get to heaven, I'll be able to watch this. Amen. You, y'all want to watch that with me? Who wants to? All right, word. We, we got to take reservations because I don't know how big the room is. Okay. Jesus. But, but there was this moment, right? It's this amazing moment where, where the heavens are ripped open and, and God is given something. What he's given is a Hebrew word that I want to teach you, and it's the word shmicha. Everyone say shmicha. Shmicha. This idea of shmicha is the word for authority. And we first see this word used in Genesis chapter 1. I think I actually have the reference there. Go up to it. It says, I give you authority. Yes, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 26. uh, It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may shmicha, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. This idea of shmiha authority, is what God gave to him to remember that all of the power that the enemy has in your life was not given to him by, the, by God. And I think that matters because a lot of times when you're going through difficult things, it, it's, it's nice to know that his power didn't come from God given something. That his strength in your life is not because God made him bigger or stronger or better than you. What happened is that all the authority was given to man and man gave away that authority up the garden. And the minute you want to get upset about that, remember that we too were given authority at birth and we give away our God-given authority every single time we walk away from the way that God is calling for us to walk. And so in many respects, Jesus is intention, his, his meaning, his purpose for being here. There's lots of them, but one of his major purposes for being here was to re-establish authority, to get back Shmicha, because that authority is now in Jesus. And, you know, know, I'm not spoiling anything. If you didn't know, he would win this, right? Eventually he dies and rises and he gets that authority back. And so now what's powerful is it says in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he's Lord. And so the idea now is that authority that was given to Adam was given over to the enemy, then Jesus gets it back and now in him we have that authority again. And It's why there's, there's authority in what you say, there's power in what you say, but it's not because you said it, but it's because of the power that he has in you. So I Paul would say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me not because I can do it but because of the strength that I have in him. Well this authority thing was was a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, And if you really want to kind of dig into this, uh, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. I don't have it up there, but you can write it down. There's some real Bible scholars in the room, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, what happened is is that God anoints Moses and Aaron to give authority to the people, to the children of Israel. He actually chose 70, right? He chose 70 leaders among them, and he says, I'm going to give them shmicha, authority, so that they can help you rule Aaron and, and Moses, And so Aaron and Moses stand with God and lay hands on these men and are given them shmiha, authority, to rule over. And so in the Jewish culture, what began to to be a thing is that in order for a person to have shmiha, or authority, uh, they had to have two people that, that were recognized as men with authority that would lay hands on them and impart that authority to them. Now, we know that Jesus was one who had great authority, in fact, the way we know that is Matthew chapter 7. I don't have it up there, but you can just write it down. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. It says, when Jesus was finished, uh, had finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And so what they're saying is, is that Jesus was a person that was recognized with shmicha, with authority. And this was actually before he would even die and rise and get it ultimately, but they recognized him as a man with authority. Well, well, in order for that to have happened, he had to have two people that laid hands on him that were to give him that that authority. And what's powerful is that the story of Jesus' baptism is the story of God giving Jesus authority. In fact, what he says over him, you are my son, who I am well pleased with, would have been a very recognizable word to every Jewish person in that audience because it's the words you say over your son when he becomes a man. In a bar mitzvah, even to this day, they will look at a son at 13 or 14 and say, you are my son, I am pleased with you, and everything that I have now goes on to you. That's the idea of it. And so now at the baptism, Jesus is downloaded with all of the authority that God had in heaven, and he puts it right into him at this moment on earth. So Jesus gets his authority from God himself, which I find fascinating. And then the second person that in many respects gave him this authority was John. That John is recognized as this second person that anoints him to be and to go and to do what he's called to do. So the two people that gave Jesus authority on earth was God himself and John the Baptist in many respects. Now, what is even more powerful about that is that the man who would give Jesus authority on earth was the man that Jesus ultimately started by giving authority to while in the womb. Like like while he was still in his mother's womb, Jesus gave him strength to do something. Eventually, he, what he was doing is he was strengthening him for him to be able to strengthen Jesus later on in life. Like, like all the strength, all of that make strong that Jesus put into John as a baby, now John lays hands on Jesus and says, Now you are free and anointed to walk and to have authority here on earth. John is recognized as one who gives him authority. In fact, another way you can know this, and we got a lot of Bible people in this room, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. I won't read it to you and dig into it, but, but they asked Jesus where he gets his authority, and in many respects, his answer is John the Baptist. He actually answers it with a question. They said, where did you get your authority? Jesus said, where did John get his It's a very Jewish way of saying that the answer to where I got it is the one that you even question. And nobody would question John, so obviously you cannot question me. There is something about Jesus getting authority from John, even though John is the one that ultimately Jesus would give that authority to. I find it really powerful and fascinating that that this moment of the story is about a transfer of authority and about Jesus walking into who he would ultimately be. I close here with the third one. Because the third one uh, is, is an interesting third scene uh, because it's, it's a little sad. Like, like based on the first two scenes, it's really excited, right? Uh, the baby's in the belly leaping and shouting and dancing. And then John the Baptist comes and there is this angelic, ah, right? The sky is open. The baptism happens. God is moving. All of these awesome things and Jesus was to go on and to do ministry uh, apart from John. But then we get this third story that we found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2. It says, when Jesus, or John, I'm sorry, was, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not uh, uh, stumble on account of me. Now, this is a really interesting passage of Scripture, specifically because John is the one who we saw give Jesus Shmiha, right? John and God. And so if John recognizes Jesus, in fact, one of the translations, when John sees Jesus, he says, behold, right? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So if that's John and he knows who this lamb is, then why would he ask a question like, are you the one who is to come? You know, the way I always thought was that John was going through some doubts. Like he's in prison and now he's saying, are are you even this Messiah? Like, are you even the one who is here to free us and to save us? I I, I believe uh, for a while that that was the idea of John. John until I've read through the the answers that Jesus gives. See, I believe that the reason that John asked that question, it wasn't because he was denying or doubting who Jesus was. I believe he asked, are you the one who is to come for one reason? Are you going to free me from prison? See, what John was literally asking Jesus at that moment is, are you going to free me? And the way we know that uh, is because the one who is to come always had this idea that he would do some things for people. That when Messiah comes, there are things that Messiah is definitely going to do. Let me show you a couple of them. Isaiah chapter 35, and I promise I'm done after this, right? Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. It says, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. You're starting to see that the one who is to come is supposed to come with what? Divine retribution. And he will save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And so the idea then is that God, when he comes, there's going to be healings and blessings, but he's going to bring divine retribution. That's what John is looking for. Let me show you the second one, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Again, you see why John is saying, you're going to cleanse us and heal us, but all of that comes with people being freed from prison. And let me show you the third one, and I think the most poignant. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, says, He came, this Messiah, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And so now you're starting to get what John is saying. If you're the one who is to come, yo, come free a brother. Like you're Messiah. You're walking on water. You're changing water to wine. You can walk over to a prison, touch the bars, and free me for me to go and do what you've called for me to do. This was John's heart. Yo, you're the Messiah. Come free me, please. And Jesus' response to him is very hard. He says, go to him and tell him what's happening here. Look what he says. Let's go back to that first one. Uh, Go back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. Look what Jesus specifically says to them. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. But he leaves one out, doesn't he? He doesn't talk about release from prison in this passage here. And then he says it this way. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What he's saying to John in this moment is, unfortunately, John, you're not going to get freed in that way right now. But you know what? Blessed are those who don't stumble because I don't do what they want me to do. I think one of the biggest lessons and something I I really want to leave you with here uh, and the reason I'm standing up in front of you is that even when we go through this journey with God and and we give him our entire lives and John dedicated his entire life to God, uh, there are still times where he doesn't do what you think he should do for you at the time that you want him to do it. And there becomes a frustration in a lot of us when he doesn't affirm or conform to the ideas or the needs or the thoughts that we think we have for ourselves. And we struggle with a God that doesn't answer us the way we want him to answer it. I'm going to leave you something that, that C.S. Lewis said a while ago that I think is very helpful. Let me, let me teach you it. It's this. He's not tame. You can't tame God. In fact, any attempts that you try to tame him will only hurt you, and it doesn't do a service to who he truly is. You can't make him do what you want him to do. But what he decides to do for you is good for you. And so what it said is that he, you can't control him, you can't tame him, but the decisions and what he's doing for you is better for you than you would do for yourselves. And so what he's saying to John is uh, this might not be what you think it's going to be. But then, if you look on with the next thing, and we'll finish here, John, uh, Jesus, then verses 7 to 12 gives John's eulogy. It's almost like he stands up and he's saying, yo, but this guy is somebody. Look what it says. As John's disciples were leaving, he could tell that this wasn't the answer that they came for, right? And then Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not... What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear the fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one from whom it is written, I will send all my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. That's nice. I like the King James Version a little bit better, right? Kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent taketh by force. It's the idea that comes. The closing thought that I have of all of this is that Jesus is now saying that John is going to die. And we know the end of that story because John is ultimately beheaded shortly after this, and he does die. And so there is, in, in many respects, almost a sadness that comes to the end of this story. Like, like, like how does this end happy? What's the good news of all of it? Well, well, the good news of it all is that Jesus did free John. He just didn't free him the way that John thought he was going to free him. Guys, hear me. There has never been a prayer that you've lifted up to the Lord that he hasn't heard. And a lot of times you think that the answer to your prayer comes in what you expect him to do. And sometimes his answer to you is beyond what you can even imagine. What Jesus was saying ultimately to John is that your freedom is not going to come on this side. It's going to come on another side. And the fact that you get to walk with me forever in heaven, that we are forever linked, shows that you are truly free. John was looking for earthly freedom, and God was trying to restore something in him. I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of things that we're asking the Lord for. And, and there are struggles and pains and hurts that we're in, and we're saying, God, free me. Let me go. And there's a frustration sometimes when he doesn't answer or do the things that we need him to do, especially in the timing that we want for him to do it. But but let me say something to you right now, that he is freeing you, that that he is healing you, that, that he has heard you, and that what he's doing for you might not look like what you want the answer to be, but he is doing something ahead of you. He is working something before you. And sometimes the answer that he has for you is better than the answer that you think you have for yourself. And so part of why he doesn't answer you the way you want it to is because that's not even really what you want. (laughs) And he knows you better than you know you. I close with this story, and it's a great one. Uh, My dad, when he was, uh, and I told this story to the DTS, uh, but it's a cool story. My dad in the early 60s uh, actually went to a conference led by Lauren Cunningham. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. And in, 19, in the early 60s, he went to a Loring Cunningham conference of YWAM, and he saw it, and he said, I'm going to do that. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing YWAM. Uh, the problem is, is that the year after that, he had a kid. Two years later, he had another one, and then another one. And if you know my story, I'm one of eight. Okay, So, so there was a lot of us. Uh, he started pastoring a church. It blew up. And so he just never got a chance to do YWAM or to connect in it with that way. But then as a young person, I went to him and there was a, a group of YWAMers that came to Boston. And I remember sitting with my dad and saying, you know, dad, I, I feel like I'm supposed to go to YWAM. I remember his face when I said it to him. It just perked up. And he's like, yeah, you got to do that. You're doing that. And, and so then I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do YWAM. And, and then I did some research on it. And, and this might hurt somebody, but this is real. I did some research on it and I, me and my wife went back to my dad and we were like, yo, it's, it's a lot of white people. Ain't many of us out there, ain't, ain't many black missionaries going and traveling the world, you know. It's just, so, so I looked at it, and I was like, I don't know. I come from a very predominantly black church, and I mean very, like 99 point something percent. Is, but I, I didn't know another world. And so I went to pop, and I was like, Dad, you know, I said I'm doing this, but, yo, come on, man. That's a lot. And he looked at me and he says, you have to do this. There's something that, that you have to do. You, you have to fulfill this. And I was frustrated with him, and, uh, but yet I still went ahead and did it. And one of the things that I tell young men and women in general is that you, every single person needs somebody in their life that can tell them, shut up, you're wrong. Shut up and listen. And I had someone in my life that I was fighting adamantly against. I don't know if mission work is for me, Dad. I don't know. And he said, Michael, you have to do this. 2006, my wife and I, after being married for a week, came to YWAM, and we were radically and forever changed. To this day, I I don't even know how many people I've talked to, young people that we've ministered to, the hundreds that have gone out under the teachings that my wife and I have had to do. And what I came to a realization is, is that God knew that I had this in my heart, even though I didn't know I had it. What I found out later on is that God and my father said, I know I can't go to YWAM, but Lord, if one of my children could do it, if one of my kids could do it, then that will be an answer. And what you need to understand is sometimes you set up the parameters for God to do something for you, and he doesn't come through for you, so you're frustrated with God. And I need you to hear me. There are times that God's no to you is not because he doesn't want you to do it, but because he has more for you than what you asked of him. And so sometimes we have to submit our ways to him, our future to him, our purposes to him, lay everything to him, knowing, of course, that anything you give to God comes back to you greater. You lose nothing when you lay it down before him. And so submit your life to him and let him do what only he can do. Amen bow your head, close your eyes, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God, that means that there is nothing missing, nothing broken in us. We're whole in you. God, I thank you that you called me here to be Something uh, that you needed me to be. God, I'm so glad that there are times where you said no to me. Even though at the moment you said no, I was frustrated with your no. And God, I pray that you will teach me, teach us, reveal to us the love you have for us. Even at times with the no's. John the Baptist had this great relationship with you, established authority in you, and yet when he wanted something, it wasn't his time for that at that moment. But God, we know that you had more for John than he could even have for himself. And ultimately, you did free him to walk with you forever. Father, we thank you that you hold our lives in your hand, that you hold us dear and close to you. That you know everything we need and want before we ask it. So God, I pray for a truly submissive heart in this room. That we will lay down the rights that we think we have to our lives. And we will submit our ways fully to you. Not our will, but your will be done. In and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.